0: I'm not going to spend a lot of time showing you pictures of my kids and stuff. I really want to dive right into some clinical stuff this morning. But just a few things first. Um, a couple of ways, if you'd like to stay connected with me in my office. Um, so this this uh, lecture is mobile device friendly. Um, so I'm okay with that if you want to take pictures of slides. But like me on Facebook. Why? We have, uh, we have uh, over 1,800 likes now. And I have a company that updates our Facebook status on a regular basis. And if you like us on Facebook, you can then share those updates. I always make the joke, it's, you know, the cats with braces. Somehow or other, people really like that. Oh, the cats with braces always gets a lot of response. Um, But if you like us on Facebook, um, then you can, and there's the address, then you can actually share those uh, updates on your Facebook page for free. So, there you go. Uh, Second way is our website. And I have to, this, is, this is my wonderful staff, who happens to be here in the front row. I won't make them stand up. Um, and apologies uh, to, to Lindsay, who's, who's the new guy. And uh, she's not on there, but uh, sorry about that, Lindsay. We'll have to update that photo. Um, but the website was recently done also, and uh, a, another way to get some interesting tips and things maybe for your websites. We tried to make it a little different and not templated. Uh, and then Instagram. Now, I have to tell you, if you don't know this already, Parents, you know, typically we're dealing almost always in suburban Westchester with the moms. Parents are on Facebook, kids are on Instagram and Snapchat and those kinds of things. So if you're having, let's say, something on your Facebook, at least in in New York, if you're having stuff on your Facebook page that's addressed to the kids, I don't know how many, it's just not cool anymore. Tomorrow, I don't know what the new thing will be. But um, up in the corner here, so we we have an iPad in the office, and we have the, yeah, let's take a selfie with the kids, you know, and then they like us on Instagram, and very quickly you can build up a large group of kid Instagram followers just by having them take selfies. Um, I'm very proud of this selfie. That's actually Tom Prescott, and uh, we were at a meeting, <clears throat> and I kind of went over to him I'm like, hey, Tom, how about a selfie? And like All the executives were like, they were cringing, but Tom gave me the thumbs up, so I guess it was okay. <laughs> yeah, there's Tom and Tom and me. Uh, and then Twitter. You can fo- follow me on Twitter as well. You can link your Facebook page to your, to your Twitter page. So if you do an update on on Facebook, it'll automatically tweet, too. Um, And again, the graveyard shift, 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and I have a a wish for all of you before we get started, and I hope that uh, for all of you that your summit experience for you and your wolf pack is like this. Although first thing on a Saturday morning in Vegas, you may be looking a little bit more like this. but yet you're here, hungover or not, so I appreciate that. (laughs) Okay, so here's our agenda. It's a clinical lecture. We're going to, you'll get some practice management along the way, but it's basically a clinical lecture. We're gonna look at 17 patients. Um, I do a lot of teen treatment, all treated with Invisalign teen and some variety of elastics. We'll see both class one and class two cases, and we're also gonna spend some time dissecting the ClinCheck so that we can get predictable results and hopefully uh, time and time again. So let's meet Bridget. Now, in a lot of ways, now, you know, interestingly enough, of all the orthodontic teen patients in the United States, only 5% of those patients are being treated with Invisalign. And I find that interesting because, and first of all, I find that there's an opportunity there. And if you don't treat teens, and, and most orthodontists, by the statistics, don't treat a lot of teens for reasons that we'll go into, First of all, there's a huge opportunity there and there's a huge market to treat the teen patients. But I think one of the reasons that maybe we shy away from teens is is the concern for compliance. But I have to tell you something. A patient like Bridget, Bridget is 15 years old. She is the prototype Invisalign patient. And quite frankly, if you start treating teens, you'll find out that they're more compliant than the adults. And not only are they more compliant than the adults, their teeth track better. And you think about adult orthodontic treatment with bracket and wire. We're dealing with a lot of things. Skeletal issues, restorations, periodontal disease, missing teeth, and the, I mean, and my experience, the adult cases are, are more challenging. And think about like the, the bread and butter 12, 13 year old child that comes into your office. I mean, typically if they brush their teeth and they're compliant, you know you can treat that case. It's the same thing with Invisalign. They're compliant and their teeth track better. So don't shy away from those cases. Um, Bridget's 15. She doesn't want braces. She's class 1. Her overbite is moderate to severe. She has moderate upper and lower crowding. We'll spend a lot of time looking at her upper right canine. And she has a normal profile. So here she is. And I look at this case, and you know, there's, some, there's some challenges here, in particular the upper right canine and the deep overbite. So I look at Bridget's mom, and I say, Bridget's gonna be an excellent Invisalign candidate. And if we have some time, we'll talk about you know, what happens when the mom says, well, you know, I heard that Invisalign doesn't work, and she's not gonna wear it. We'll, we'll spend some time on the inje- objections. But let's see what, what happens with her case. Nothing exciting about her pan. And nothing terribly exciting about her. Her, her Ceph is within normal limits as well. So let's take a look at her clincheck. Now, this was right around the time where one of the, you know, we're up to G6 now, I guess. This is, you know, GWiz is the next version. That's uh, from Sam Dahar. That's not mine, Sam Dahar. I can't, I stole that from some Sam. But this is one of the versions of GWiz. And when I got this clincheck, I said, okay, you know, John Morton, who, who is the, you know, the, the mind behind ClinCheck and Invisalign is a very bright man and studied with Charlie Burstone and worked with Charlie Burstone. And if this attachment is good enough for John Morton, it's good enough for me and it's optimized to... By the way, when I look at ClinCheck, I don't particularly like to hit the forward button and watch it play. I do one of two things. And, and Dr. Goodman, who, was, uh, who spoke yesterday, is in the front row, talked about you know, toggling before and after. And I think that's, that's a really good tip, Adam, because I, I, it just kind of, I, I don't know, it just gives you a better view of where you're going. The other thing that I'll do is I'll just grab the slider over here, and I, I don't know, I just get a feel, just by kind of going back and forth, this motion just gives me a little bit better feel for what's happening as, as far as, the, as of the movement, so that may be something to try. So we look at this ClinCheck, and I say, okay, well, you know, the science and the measurements say that that attachment is optimized for that movement of the canine, so, so okay, so let, let's, let's go with it and see what happens. So, so that's what I did. So let's see what happened. So here she comes in. Now, in retrospect, I think that this is exactly what, ha- what should have happened. And the reason why is that canine started out somewhat inclined to the buckle. And it needed a, two types of extrusion. It needed absolute extrusion and it needed relative extrusion, and there's a difference. Absolute extrusion is extrusion. You're grabbing the tooth and you're extruding it. We didn't get that here. We got the relative extrusion, which is as the tooth tips down and back, it's going to arc down and tend to to deepen. So we got the relative extrusion, which is very predictable, but we did not get the absolute extrusion. So I looked at her, I looked at this case and said, okay, what would I do? And by the way, this is, I think, a tip that you should write down. If you're still at that point where you're like, you know, I don't really know how to do Invisalign, you know, I do braces all the time and, and I don't get it, the secret is that you do get it because it's no different from what you do with braces. And I'm here this morning to tell you that when you're treating patients, whether it's with braces or Invisalign, biology doesn't change. The laws of physics don't change, and nor do biomechanics. So it's, it's just like braces. So you just put on your thinking cap. If this patient came in like this with braces, you know, in, in a nanosecond you would know exactly what to do to manage this tooth. Well, in my, in my office, I would put a triangle elastic on. To, to, to bring that tooth down into position if the patient were in braces. So I said to myself, self, why don't you use a triangle elastic? So, you know, and I, and I use a lot of elastics in the office because I think they're simple and clean and neat and patients don't typically object. It's funny, you know, they have Invisalign and now they want neon elastics, if I find that ironic. But I'm okay, fine, you want neon elastics, we're okay with that. So, if you look at this, the second go-round, this is her refinement ClinCheck. This is what she looks like. Now, look at, let's look at this setup carefully. Do I have a laser pointer on here? I do have a laser pointer. Okay. There's two types of precision cuts on this ClinCheck. On the upper canine, we've got a button cutout. And this is a scenario when you want to physically move the tooth where you want the elastic force to go directly to the tooth. So I'm gonna bond a button on that tooth because I wanna pull that tooth down and extrude it. Compared to the lower arch, where all I'm looking to do is a place to hang my triangle elastic. I'm not looking to, but my, my lower arch is leveled. So I place two precision cuts face towards each other so that the patient could now hook up, whoop, sorry, a triangle elastic, so the, from here to here. Now, in retrospect, what I would do differently now is I would also place a little retentive attachment on the lower right canine and lower first premolar to prevent the aligner from popping up. But it's just anchorage for the elastic. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, you know, look at this ClinCheck, and this is going to be an elastic-assisted movement. And that's what it looks like. And you'll notice you know, there's a little bleeding. We, you know, I, I always have to check contacts, to do IPR, make sure that we're not bound up. And it's you know, little, little, use the button of, your, of choice. These are these little ceramic buttons from GAC. Um, doesn't have to be from GAC. That's what we use. <clears throat> and there's the anchorage on the bottom. And here she is six weeks later. So it, it doesn't take long. Um, and, and you know, in a case like this, I, I decided to do this Versus, let's say, a bootstrap elastic, not that you could not have done a bootstrap elastic around, but, you know, I, I don't know, sometimes I don't find those to track as well. It's sort of hit and miss. And again, I tried to use the same paradigm as what I would do with a patient in braces. So we have the tooth tracking the way it's supposed to. So here she is at the beginning. This is what her ClinCheck predicted her final result to be. And here she's after 20 months of treatment. Canines are socked in. And I'll also, uh, you know, listen, I'm also here to, you know, warts and all, so I'll show you the things that maybe I could have done a little better. And in this particular case, if I had to, a, another shot at it, I would have, you know, her bite's a little, little deeper than ideal. Not that I'm not satisfied, but if I had to treat her again, and I'll show you later on the moves to make to avoid having your bites be a little deeper than you want. Nevertheless, she's socked in class one and the canines, you know, aligned well. Um, you know, in over 600 lifetime cases, I, I, I have not seen any root resorption at all with Invisalign, so I'm not surprised that this pan looks, looks well, looks good. Um, in lieu of a superimposition, I like to do these little morphs before and after for, uh, for the staff. And again, not any, you know, real significant change. I mean, she didn't need, uh, any significant occlusal change, you know, or sagittal change anyway. So here she is, um. With the, what the ClinCheck predicted and here she is a little bit deeper and again if you look at the initial ClinCheck and the mistake here was that this ClinCheck is too deep and should have been over treated uh, and I'll show you how to do that 20 months treatment time one refinement and she, it was a four ounce elastic and that was just for six weeks okay so now Kira walks in now Kira to me presents uh, some clinical issues and you could just see even from her facial from her smile she, and we'll look at her herself, but she is an open bite waiting to happen. You know, sort of class three tendency, long lower facial third, hyperdivergent. And here's her, her bio. Kira's 16, and I look at Kira's mom and, and say the profound words, Kira is an excellent Invisalign candidate. You know, and her mom goes, well, I, you know, I heard it's more expensive, and I heard she's going to lose them, and I would go, have to go through the garbage at McDonald's, I mean, you know the whole thing. You know, so we de- debunk the myths. We'll talk about that now. First of all, I charge the same fee for Invisalign as I do for braces. Because I, I, I wanted to be, knowing that only 5% of teens are being treated, I want to be the teen guy in Westchester County. I'm the only elite provider. I, there's another one in this room who maybe just uh, dropped off a little bit. Oh, that's not my phone. <laughs> but I, I'm the only elite provider in Westchester. Westchester County, we're talking about an affluent area. Um, So I I didn't want parents to have obstacles to saying yes to Invisalign Teen, so I charged Mrs. Jones. It's it's not a problem. We charge the same fee for Invisalign as braces. Um, We have great compliance. We only have to order a replacement aligner once once in a blue moon. The kids are very compliant. Um, And then this is my hammer of Thor for if you really want to do more Invisalign and you're getting pushback from the parents. Mrs. Jones, for any reason, If it's not, if Invisalign Teen is not working for you or your child, I will switch her to braces at no charge. Now, you you could take that or leave that. You know, you may think I'm out of my mind, but we do it less than 1% of the time. So once in a while, we switch a patient, and we don't make it a big deal, right, guys? It's not working for you, fine. We switch to braces. So once in a while, I have to eat a case, you know, absorb that lab fee. But it got me to elite, so you know, let's say in 600 cases, maybe we've had to switch a dozen patients. That's not a bad track record, and it got me to elite, and so once in a blue moon, we have to absorb a case, it's, it doesn't affect my 401k or my retirement date. So for me, that was a great method to get more parents, because I said, them, listen, you have nothing to lose. If you're right and I'm wrong, and, and she's not gonna be compliant with Invisalign, we can always switch, and that has worked really well for me. So if there's TCs in the room, that's all you have to say, and it works really well. So getting back to Kira's case, I'm very concerned about her hyperdivergent, her open bite tendency, and her long lower facial height. And, you know, when when a patient walks in like this, this is what I mean by an open bite waiting to happen. You know the biomechanics. If you put braces on, whatever braces you want, you put an 014 night tie into that arch, you know the side effects. You know, the side effects are that we're going to get intrusion of the upper anterior teeth, we're going to roll the roots towards the mesial, and you're going to wind up with a roller coaster of an occlusal plane. So in in the pre-Invisalign days, when I strapped these patients up, on day one, we would start them with triangle elastics to the canines to sort of tip the anchorage in our favor. So again, I said, why don't we do the same thing with Kira? Any day now. So I used my experience with Bridget, and I basically did the same thing with Kira, with a few changes. Now I've got a retentive attachment on the lower canine and lower first premolar, simply because the elastic that's going to run to the precision cut tends to make that aligner pop off. So this is just, they're just retentive attachments. I've got my button cut out here, and I decided to place an attachment here as well, feeling that, all right, this is what the ClinCheck wants that tooth to do. If we happen to hit it out of the park and the tooth tracks, at least I've got the attachment on there to to encourage that tooth to stay in the aligner. But I'm backing it up with that triangle elastic. My other feeling too, now I also, by the way, placed... Extrusion optimized, well they placed for me, optimized extrusion attachments on the upper anterior teeth because despite the fact that this is Invisalign and not braces, I'm still worried about reciprocal forces and I'm still worried about opening the bite. So I wanted again, tip the, the scales in my favor so that we have retentive attachments on the upper incisors to prevent unwanted bite opening. Make sense? Questions? We should have time for a few and if not, I'll be around at the end too. Yes, in the front here. What you tell that the, does the line know the amount of space to allow for the This mesiodistal, the question was what, the, what did you tell the Visalign as far as leaving space? In the tray so that. So ah. The patient, you didn't cut the tray. Correct. Now the, now, the first patient that you saw, there wasn't supposed to be space, but she wasn't tracking. Right. So, in this case, when pa- the patient inserts a liner one, it's going to fit that canine like a glove. And, and yeah, so you don't want any space. So this is not an, like an eruption compensation case where they place that virtual geometry. The, the aligner is going to go right up over that tooth and it has to because that's your precision cut and that's where your buttons going to go. Make sense? In the back. Uh, hang up that tooth. It's just where the elastic? The, the attachments may make it worse. Yeah. Well, the, and the answer is you're right. And like anything else, I mean, what, what do we do when patients are non-compliant? You go to plan B. So you, I started off sort of with the idea that we're going to do this and that she'll wear it. And if she didn't, we would have to have gone to some other, yeah, I don't know what I would you know. And that's a good question. I, you know, what would you do if that canines up there and the patient doesn't wear a rubber band? Yeah, you could, you could right. You could take off the attachment, but it makes it's not going to help from the standpoint. If she's not wearing the elastic, you're going to just stand there watching that canine do nothing. One more, and then we'll keep going. So I have a hand over here. Yeah. You, the space, you know, in this case, no, because you know she had a giant parking space for the tooth. But if it were a if it were tight, absolutely, you want them to at least spread the t- like. You want to do a coil spring, you know, a virtual coil spring. You know, I don't call it that, but you want to create enough room. And we'll tell patients that too, that because sometimes you know patients come in, and like with let's say again going back to braces, you brace every tooth except the worst one because you don't have room for it, and they don't get that. And I'm like, look, before you park the car, you've got to create the parking space. So absolutely, you want to make sure that when that tooth descends, that you've got at least a little breathing room, to, maybe to avoid or, or IPR if, if you don't want to do that. Good question. So here's what we're you know hoping to find. Which and again I think that you know without without an elastic, I, I don't think that's realistic. I and mean, it's a big tooth and that's a lot of lot of extrusion. <clears throat> so here she is in action. You know, and again it's clean and it's neat. And and for the most, you know, if if they're compliant with the aligners, almost always they're compliant with the with the elastics. So I'm gonna go through a progression of visit by visit by visit. And if you also pay attention to the, you know, overjet in the front, you know, she's tight to begin with. It's maybe a little bit more open here. Change from here, yeah, I don't know what to attribute that to, but you'd see that where our canine, canines are still tracking well. Here she is before. This is what we predicted on the clin check. And here she is at the end. Now, I'm not trying to rationalize. It's not perfect. I think it's good. It's not perfect. She's slightly open on the sides, but I'm very comfortable, based on her skeletal pattern, with the fact that we've coupled the canines, coupled the incisors. Um, I do not have uh, uh, final settling pictures on her, but this case, I'm comfortable. With this level of of open bite, especially on the left side, I'm comfortable with settling in this case. And you can flame me all you want because I don't have a Ceph on her, which I should have. And her treatment time was twenty-three months. After watching Dr. Ostreicher's lecture, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> oh my, oh my God. <laughs> all right. Now I want to spend some time on class two treatment, and actually, the, actually, for the rest of the morning that we have, we're going to, which is about an hour and five minutes, we're going to talk about class twos. Now. I went to Boston University, that's where I did my my orthodontic training and I was very fortunate to train under the late um, Anthony Gianelli, who was an evidence-based dentist before that was a term. And he always, it was always about the literature and it was always about basing our treatment protocols on things that were grounded in the scientific literature. And for me, all these years later, it's still what I hang my hat on. So I like treatment modalities that are based, and that have something literature to back them up. So, Class two patients. So so we're going to spend some time on lit review this morning. So here's, here's the didactic part of the course. And you don't have to look very far. There's a great article by Janssen and Associates in the March 2013 issue of the American Journal of Orthodontics and Dental Facial Orthopedics. And it's a systematic review. And it's a systematic review essentially looking at one thing. What do Class two elastics do and what don't they do? So what the authors did was actually started off with over 500 papers and they distilled those 500 papers down to 11 articles that met their criteria. And of those 11 articles, four of them looked at the effects of class two elastics. This is with braces, mind you. What, What do class two elastics do? What are their effects and how do they work? The second seven papers compared class two elastics to other methods of class two treatment and it was a large list of things. Bionators, Frankels, Herbst, uh, removable functional appliances, springs, all those things, to see if there were any discernible differences in treatment outcome between class two, elastic, class 2 elastics and all the other methods that we have of correcting class 2 malocclusions. So let's look at the first four articles that looked at just class 2 elastics at all, at alone. And in a nutshell, the authors found that Class II elastics are effective in correcting Class II malocclusions through a combination of dentoalveolar alveolar and skeletal effects. And I'm gonna talk about that in a little bit when we talk about why this. I don't do this on adults. Now, if we look at it a little bit more specifically, in patients, now remember, so we're talking about growing teen patients in, in these studies. What they found with patients that were successfully treated with Class II elastics that the maxillary first molar tended to stay in its original position, a la a headgear effect. At the same time that the SNA angle was reduced, and the mandibular molar first first molar moved forward. If it's more specifically, these are in general the effects of class II elastics that you can expect. You can expect some headgear effect, restraint of maxillary growth, a skeletal t- component. You can also expect additional mandibular growth, and it's in, I find this you know, 1.2 millimeter number interesting because if you look at most of the HERP studies, right, Joe? Dr. Ciccio in the back there, good friend of mine, um, Panchairs and, and, and those guys, they, you know, typically most of the HERP studies show that, on average, maybe you can get one, one to two millimeters of additional mandibular growth compared to, let's say, untreated patients. Um, but significant amounts of overjet reduction you're close to six millimeters of overjet reduction on average with with class 2 elastics and this is a biggie the biggie is that you're going to expect 63 percent of your change through movement of the teeth through dental che- changes 37 percent through skeletal and that's why i don't advocate this technique for adults because they're not going to grow we don't expect that skeletal change and I think that's why it's, going to be, it's frustrating and we don't, I don't see the results and we can tip it with just rubber bands, you know, class elastics alone. So you'll look at, look at these cases and you'll see these cases that I'm going to show you before and after and you see all this growth and you're going to think, oh, he got lucky in this case, the patient grew. You know, we all, we all say that at lectures, you know, you elbow your friend and, we all, you know, we always criticize. But I'm going to submit to you this morning, are we getting lucky or are we harnessing biology? You know, we've all studied growth, growth and development, and pubertal patients grow in, predict, in predictable ways. And I sort of, I, I say, that, you know, they're on the juice. They're, 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 they're juicing like baseball players. They're, they're on their own natural growth hormone. It's an ideal time to plan for growth modification and get this growth response. So it, it's not luck. It's biology. And for me, that makes me feel more comfortable with this approach. Um, now... Uh, and Bill Cotiman, I don't know if Bill's in the room, but Bill, you know, Bill and I have a similar view uh, on this, this uh, technique. Bill calls the class to elastics the lowly latex. And that, that they've been somehow dissed over the years in the literature. Uh, that, you know, they don't work, or they're ineffective, or they're not elegant. And also because of the perceived side effects. Like uh, blowing lower incisors forward, and canting occlusal planes. The authors did not find any you know, significant deleterious effects of elastics in these studies. The second group of articles compared class II elastics versus other treatment modalities. Like I said, the Herbst or Forces or Activators, Bionators, Frankels, that kind of thing. And not surprisingly, what they found was in a nutshell that class II elastics are similar to the effects of fixed functional appliances in the long term, placing these two methods close to each other when evaluating treatment effectiveness. They, if you, they take 100 cases. Half the cases treated with class elastics, half the cases treated with something else, arbitrary. Let's say a Herbst, and then they take a panel of expert orthodontists and they have them look at pre and post treatment records. And the panels of expert orthodontics, orthodontists, can't tell the difference of treatment modality because they work the same. And if you look at that 63% dental and 37% skeletal, that's what the Herbst studies find as well. So they work the same. And I use Herbst appliances too. I'm not here to say that they don't work. But class two elastics are effective. So based on that research, I developed this elastic protocol. And it looks like this. And it's simple and it's neat. And it works. So the important elements here are... Precision cuts on the upper canines, elastic hooks, and on the lower molars. Now, I'm not a button guy. I'm not a button guy because I can't keep my buttons on. And, you know, if you don't want to go broke doing Invisalign, if you want to be efficient and make this work in your practice, I don't want emergency appointments. I want to minimize that. And I, I, I don't know if it's just me, but I, had, I was speaking to a doctor this morning who had the same issue, so I feel a little bit better. But I don't want those buttons coming off. So I have the patient run their elastics right to the precision cut. And this little beauty right here, this attachment on the first molar is very important. This is a, an occlusally beveled rectangular attachment. So the ledge is right here. And this attachment is placed on the lower first molars simply to prevent the aligner from popping off from the vertical component of force of the rubber band. It's a retentive attachment, and it works well. So here's my protocol. Now, I place my attachments at the first visit. When I, when I took my certification course with Invisalign, you know, we were trained that you're not supposed to put the attachments on at the first visit because we're supposed to have this kumbaya moment you know, when the patient gets their aligners and everybody's so happy and we celebrate and they don't break their fingernails and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of find that funny because you put the attachments on at the second visit and then they hate you. You know, it's just sort of delaying the inevitable. <laughs> So, and, and I also, by the way, think it's inefficient because to me, if you're going to have them come in for like an Invisalign insertion appointment without attachments, and then have them come in to visit two, that's two long appointments in your office because you know even they can't just come in and get the aligners. There's got to be some instruction and all of that. So we set up the patient for an Invisalign start appointment, half hour. Attachments go on. Um, they get their instructions, and off they go. And. Uh, it works fine now if you want to do it the other way it's fine if you if you prefer to put your attachments on to visit two there's nothing wrong with that just don't start your rubber bands until you have your ta- attachments placed otherwise your aligners will become projectiles you know it's interesting uh, yes some yes sometimes yes and sometimes no i started off initially always placing the attachment on the cuspid um, if I've got a lot of other attachments, like on Kira, where I had all these upper incisor attachments, it's not necessary. Um, but if you don't have a lot of attachments on the upper arch, then I would recommend doing the same thing, placing a, an incisally beveled rectangular attachment on the cuspid. And here's a little trick, with ClinCheck Pro, drag, because really that's just a retentive attachment, it doesn't have to be in any particular place. Drag it towards the distal surface of the tooth because it's less noticeable. You know, patients, you complain about those little bumps on the canine. So just move it around towards the back of the tooth so it's not so visible from the front. Because you're just looking for a place just for the, for the, for retention. So that, that's a little trick for that. Light elastics. You know, I had beg training at, at Boston University. And with beg training, we strapped patients up and we started them on visit one with light class two elastics and they worked. So light, and so I said, why not try the same thing with Invisalign? So we'll start off with light elastics, 2 ounces, 1.8 ounce elastics, because I get them from, you know, they're GAC Chinas, but for all intent and purposes, 2 ounces is, is effective. Very rarely do we need to go to 4 ounces. And I think, by the way, that's another reason that I'm not seeing side effects, because the elastic force is so light. It's not enough to overpower the aligners and flare your lower incisors, or can't your occlusal plane. So it's just a light, continuous force, which, as we all know, is, is a nice way to move teeth. And this is what it looks like. So it's neat, and it's clean, and you know, patients you know, generally have no issue hooking them up, any more than any, you know, they, they fumble for the, at, at the mirror, but by the time they go home, they've got it, and it works great. So let's meet Lance. <clears throat> now, Lance is 11, and Lance has a congenital heart defect. And her, his, his mom came in requesting Invisalign because of the issues with pre-medication. And it also turns out that Lance is a, is a gentleman. He, at 11 years old, he's mature, he's engaging, he's a, he's a great kid. And he's going to be an excellent Invisalign candidate even at 11. So he said, OK, let's do it. You know, and then I looked at his case. <laughs> so he's an 11-year-old male, he's class one. It's moderate to severe severely deep overbite. The upper left one is, is a high, in high labial position. He has moderate lower crowding. He's actually class two. That should say class two, not class one. <laughs> if I had more time, I'd go in and edit that right now because I'll forget. But he's class two. <laughs> and a convex profile. So I say, oh, sure, he'd be great if he's like candy. Then he opens his mouth, and I'm like, oh, boy. I remember Bridget's case, you know, with the canine, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I, I don't know how a triangle elastic would work in the front here. But then I looked a little bit more closely, and you see it on your ClinCheck, and there's certain things about the position of that canine that make this case more predictable. Normal pan, nothing about the Ceph that gets me concerned. Okay. All right, so now, when we talked about Bridget, we talked about two types of extrusion, relative and absolute. Lance needs a lot of relative extrusion, and I think of, let's say, you had a labial bow on this tooth. And if you tighten the labial bow, as that tooth retracts, you know that you're gonna deepen it at the the same time. So the fact that it's flared forward, I think, it's, you know, plays in our favor. Now, it's clearly also needs, it's just like Bridget, needs some element of absolute ex- extrusion too. So there's a combination of relative and absolute. Now, let's look on the side here. Whoop, yeah, that's not good. That's better. So here's the class two protocol. In this case, I opted not to place a retentive attachment, but I, if I were, I would place it here. Here's our precision cuts, and here's our retentive attachment on the molar. So we place clincheck through, bite opening, and our virtual jump to class one. Now, it's funny. Every now and then, you know, at a seminar, a doctor will go, I don't understand how it's going to do that in the last stage. And I'm like, it doesn't do it in the last stage. It's a prediction. It's a, it's a prediction, and why you want that jump is because you want to check at the end. Without doing that jump, it's hard to tell what your midlines will look like. It's hard to tell what your overjet will look like. So you want to have that jump, just like in in surgery. You take models before surgery and you articulate them together to make sure they fit. And that's the purpose of the class two jump. Okay? So here is a refinement, one year in treatment. And again, in retrospect, it's kind of, it's, I got what I should have got, have gotten. I got the element of relative extrusion, not so much the absolute extrusion. Having said that, at refinement, I'm thinking we're on our way here in this case, and he's looking pretty good. So we continue on um, in refinement. Guy next door is a lot funnier than me, huh? <laughs> I should have everybody just burst out into laughter just to, to show him up. There you go. Let's hear Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Well, fix Bill Cotterman's wagon, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right, so here he is. And you see we could still use a little bit more sagittal correction. So we're going to continue on. We'll we'll look at the side first. You know, nothing too exciting here. I'm expecting the predictable effects of mandibular growth. You know, not much of a jump here at this point. And the um, upper left uh, central, a little bit of IPR. It was a little tight. You know, I'm hopeful, you know, with with this amount of movement that's something that we can achieve. And also, I kind of felt good, you know, if you think about two braces here, you got this nice reciprocal movement set up where, where tooth number eight needs to be intruded and tooth number nine needs to be extruded. So at least in my mind, you know, this is just anecdotal, but I looked at that and thought, well, one's moving down and one's moving up, so it kind of makes sense as far as Newton's third law is concerned. So let's see how we did. So here's what we predicted. That's his refinement clincheck prediction. And here he is at 22 months of treatment. Alignment looks good. Bite maybe a tad, tad tad deep. Here he is, just a little bit better photos. He came back in. This is one year of retention. Occlusion looks solid and stable. Now, let's take a look at his morph. You can see the degree of mandibular growth that you get, you know, and this isn't luck, this is, by, this is growth and development. So that growth of the mandible, along with the predictable dental changes, equates to sagittal correction. Yes? 15 was erupting, yes? Great question. There was an erupting five, how do, how do you inc- incorporate that into your ClinCheck design? What would you do if the patient was in braces? Well, what I would do is I would skip over that tooth and make a bypass arch or something like that. I've got a lot of other stuff to work on. Like sometimes parents go, oh, I don't understand why you didn't put all the braces on. And, you know, we'll say, well, that tooth isn't grown in all the way. We've got lots of other things to work on, so we're going to prioritize those other things first. And we'll pick up that tooth later with a bracket when it erupts. So I do the same thing with Invisalign. I just order eruption compensation. So in your aligner, your will look like the tooth is in occlusion. So basically, it's a recess for that tooth to erupt into, and then at refinement, you pick it up and refine it. So just ask for eruption compensation. Typically, they'll just do it automatically. They'll say something like a virtual geometry was placed or something like that. But you can also prescribe that. There's a, there's a page on your prescription where you can prescribe how much space you want for the virtual, uh, not for the, for the um, eruption, te- for the... You know what it's called, the eruption thing. <laughs> so let's look at Stephen. So, you know, I treated Lance and felt, you know, f- pretty pretty happy with the result. So now Stephen walks in, 14-year-old male. Now, he's class two, division two-ish. You know, Angle didn't t- coin that term, but I'll explain wh- why I think he's class two, division two-ish in a minute. He's got a deep overbite. He's got minimal overjet because he's got lingually inclined upper anteriors, with mild to moderate upper and lower crowding, and a normal profile, maybe slightly retrognathic in, in the mandible. So here's Steven's clinical, clinical presentation. You know, you look at that, and it looks reasonably, at least from, from the dental dental standpoint, like a class two div two. You know, when you'll, you could see significant um, sagittal discrepancy here. But but cephalometrically, that's not a div2 ceph. You know, he's not he's not uh, hypodivergent. So he's got that that's hence the class two div2 ish. But you know, more more predictable to treat this case than let's say the low angle case. And you know, just you know, I do I do like an armchair cycle, you know, I'm sure you do it too, whether you realize it or not when patients come in for the initial con- consultation and usually the first five minutes are talking about the mats or you know sports or whatever, to try to engage the patient. And usually, very quickly, we have an assessment. You know, it's funny. I don't have to have the patient open their mouth to know what their final result's gonna look like because you get to a point where you know what you're doing and you can correct malocclusions. It's, it's when they open their mouth to talk and whether they're engaging and whether they make eye contact and you know how belligerent they are and all of those things. So to me, the the critical factor in getting a good result is patient attitude. So you know you chat with Stephen for a few minutes, and he's a nice kid, and he wants Invisalign because I treated his friend, and and his friend likes it, and he wants it too. So you you get a sense right off the bat that he's a good kid, and he's going to follow the rules. Now, if you haven't, I'm sure there's very few in this room that haven't, but if you haven't downloaded ClinCheck Pro... I'm going to show you ClinCheck Pro. And by the way, Adam, there's a way that you can actually make these archive ClinChecks look like live ClinChecks. So you can actually, because typically you would do this and you wouldn't be able to see all the tools. I'll show you how to do that. It's pretty cool. So when you you go to ClinCheck Pro, you activate, you turn on your 3D tools and you get this toolbox. And if you saw, they have new developments. So you should go play with the ClinCheck Pro over at the uh, booth there. But in this case... For example, that attachment on the molar, if you hover your mouse over that attachment, it'll say rectangular, horizontal, incisal. That means that's the the, the place where it's beveled to. And you simply drag and drop it on the tooth, and it knows to place it on the mesial. And then it'll play with it, you'll make make sure it's not an occlusion. You know, sometimes you have this clin check. you're in a rush, the patient's in a rush, and you, you think it's all set, and then you get that nice paragraph back that says, attachments are in occlusion. I'm like, really? You couldn't just move the thing a millimeter for me out of occlusion, but they won't, or maybe they can't. So, you know, I do it myself. And also, you go down to this bottom button here and just hover your mouse over Compare with Original so you can see your original too, because sometimes it's an occlusion in the original bite and not in the end. So you can kind of go back and forth here, and again, you know, like what what Dr. Goodman does, you can toggle back and forth here to see what your effects are, are doing. So you drag that one over there. And you do the same thing on the other side. And then, as I was saying before, you can kind of scoot this one distally a little bit, just simply for aesthetics. And, you know, the patients appreciate that. So you make some of those little changes. Now, in the last couple of ClinChecks, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about over-engineering your ClinCheck. And I want to show you what I didn't do in this ClinCheck, and it'll make more sense a little bit later. But if you look at his final overbite, clearly it's too deep to begin with. And clearly there's not enough palatal root torque in the upper anteriors. And that's another point that I want to make about ClinCheck. You know, you, you tend to get hypnotized by the final ClinCheck. And you see the final ClinCheck, and it looks like a board case, you know, and I say, yes, yes, that's what I want. And you, you're, you're quick to hit approve. But here's, here's my opinion on that. Here's where I think ClinCheck is right now. I think ClinCheck is like standard edgewise. With standard edgewise... You know, the doctors didn't call up the bracket manufacturer and go, oh, I don't understand why the teeth aren't working. The doctors knew that it was incumbent upon them and their skill to place all the first, second, and third order bends into the arch wire in order to get the teeth to do what they wanted to do. And that is my feeling with ClinCheck. So I build, in my mind, my own pre-adjusted prescription into the ClinCheck. Does that make sense? Now, you could say to yourself, well, why don't they do that for us? And and, perhaps sometime in the future they will. But I think at this point we're just at the standard edgewise stage. So when you look at your final clinchecks, think about that. And don't accept them if they look quote-unquote perfect because in general you'll see some underperformance in aligners, in particular with tip torque rotations in ins and outs. So I'll show you how to to over-engineer your clinchecks. Make sense? I think I'm, ignore- I'm not give- I have to give you guys on this side of the room some love. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm ignoring you over on this side. Uh, any questions about that? Good. And I'll show you how to do that. So that's ClinCheck Pro. So here's Steven at the beginning. Here's what we predicted in the ClinCheck, and here's what we got. And, you know, quite honestly, pretty close to the project- prediction. Again, warts and all. You know, a little bit deep, but, you know, look at the degree of sagittal correction that we achieved here, you know, from before. Full cusp class two, full cusp uh, both in the canines and molars. No decal. Gums aren't overgrowing the braces. You know, all the other nice things too. Nice smile arc. Good root position. And again, just what the literature predicts. Now, interestingly enough, too, if you look at his um, IMPA, you know, his lower incisor to mandibular plane started out at 99. In the face of 4-ounce elastics, because we did, in his case, go up to 4-ounce elastics based on the fact that he had you 7-millimeter know, discrepancy, we went from 99 to 97. So there's, you don't blow the lower incisors forward, simply because, I, I think, because they're encased in the aligners. So you get really, really good control, both of lower incisor position in addition to the mandibular plane. You know, and again, and, and I started to think about it a little bit. All right, listen, I, again, I, I'm not here to knock fixed appliances because I use them too, but I'm starting to think that some of the side effects that we see with class II elastics, in particular, proclination of the lower incisors, extrusion of the molars, and cl- inadvertent clockwise mandibular ro- rotation, maybe it's not the elastics. You know, maybe it's the 016 night tie in the pre-adjusted appliance and it's the side effect, the predicted side effects of braces, and we know that braces are extrusionary. So I'm thinking that, because like, in a case like this, if I were to treat him with braces, I would go through the sequence, level in a line, work up to 1822 stainless steel arch wires, and then start my rubber bands. I'm thinking that probably I've already blown the lower incisors forward. So and again, that's just that, that's just in my mind, that's anecdotal, but you don't see that with Invisalign, and I think that's really nice. In addition, you're starting the patient both on their alignment and their sagittal correction at visit one. You don't have to wait eight to ten months of leveling and aligning to get into your class to elastics, so it's more efficient. Yes? You're starting your class to elastics in this case because in my practice, your anterior puppy is height and conditioning Correct. But if you're also engaging class to elastics initially. Correct. the question is that because the patient had a tight overbite and overjet in the beginning if you start them on class II elastics at the first at the first visit are you could you potentially run into occlusal traumatism in the in the front I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, could you wind up with, with a, a traumatic bite in the front, maybe posterior open bite and all that? And the answer is no, and I think the answer is no because we're simultaneously correcting, you know, what you would do in a typical DIV2 case is you create them, turn them into a DIV1 first and then do it, but we're doing it simultaneously, and the, the effects of the elastics aren't instantaneous. You know, if, if, patient, if this patient came back in a month of treatment and he, his sagittal position looked better, most of it at that point is still probably posturing, so we're, we're getting palatal root torque and or flaring the, of the upper incisors concurrent with the sagittal correction. So I have not seen an issue with it. It sort of happens all together. So I, I have not seen a problem with that at all. And I haven't seen any cases with patients coming in with, let's say, mobility or, you know, all of a sudden, like with really bad posterior open bites. So not an issue. Yes, in the back. Great question. And the question is, does the patient wear the elastics for the whole duration of the treatment, or do you stop at some point? And the answer is, just what would you do with braces? You know, we titrate the patient. So, you know, you look at my chart, and you'll see all these charts written, you know, stop elastics at some point. So we monitor the patient, um, and when they get to class one, we will typically then, you, you know, you want, you, you know, there's probably even let's say it's six months or eight months of treatment. You're concerned maybe about some posturing or maybe the condyle isn't in centric relation. Now we don't take tomograms, so I sort of do it the the more uh, you know empirical way. We'll have the patient go on the elastics, maybe get slight overcorrection then have them go to elastics at night for a visit or two, you know, and wean them off, just like I do with braces. So you you titrate the patient little by little. But if they're class one and they're down to nights only and they're class one, then we'll stop them. And at the next visit, we'll see if they've slipped at all. You know, if they haven't, then you know you're home free. So here is, you know, to make myself feel a bit better, here is a 15 months of retention looking even better, I think. You know, and the case is holding up well. 17 months total treatment time. And again, I think it's 17 months, not because it's magical, because again, as I said at the beginning, the biology and the physics and the biomechanics are the same. It's I think just because you get on the rubber bands at visit one versus you know, in 10 months into treatment, if you, were, if you were leveling and aligning first and then going to the elastics. So it's, it's very efficient. And oh, light to elastics. I lied. It wasn't four-ounce elastics. All right, so now Joseph walks in. He's 13 years old. Class 2 division 1. Moderately deep overbite, large overjet, mild upper and lower crowding with protrusive upper incisors and a convex profile. So now if Joseph walks into your office, you have to ask yourself, is he an Invisalign candidate? You know, is is this, you know, in your office, is this type of bite An exclusion criteria where you just don't think, I I can't get this with Invisalign. Um, And I'll show you that you can, and there's some some things about his clinical presentation that actually make him an excellent Invisalign candidate. In particular, look at the position of the upper incisors. Now we're gonna start to talk a little bit about how we, we build in a prescription into our ClinCheck. Now, I'm sure you've seen this. You have a patient where maybe they've got uh, overjet and you're asking for retraction of the upper incisors and the upper incisors tip in too far, you know, if you haven't done anything with Invisalign. Um, And and that that, that does happen, and it happens routinely. So my thought is that since this patient's flared a little bit, he's kind of got some overtreatment already built into his case. So why don't we try to maintain some of that proclination in the ClinCheck knowing that we're going to lose some? Make sense? So, let's take a look at how this worked out. And again, I think this also is an illust- illustration that a, a vast majority of the class two div one teens are really mandibular retrognathic. I mean, it's very, you know, unusual that you have a true prog. So, my feeling, again, with this elastic protocol, and, and, that, and again, distalization works fine, but if most patients have some degree of mandibular retrognathism, why distalize the maxillary arch, a relatively well-positioned maxillary arch, to a somewhat deficient mandible? If we know that we can get some growth change with elastics, if the mandible is, is diagnostically the issue, why not address, why don't we go mandible forward versus maxilla back? And, and that's my thought for a case like this. And 107, is lower incisors to mandibular plane are 107. Joseph also brings up uh, a good example of Murphy's Law, and I'll show you in a a second. So there's his presentation. He's got the Class two protocol. Now, here's what I did right, and here's what I did wrong. What I did write was I recognized that he's got some nice additional palatal root torque or incisor crown flaring, whatever you want to term it, built into the case. And I sort of let some of it tip in initially. But I didn't let all of it tip in. If you look at the position of the upper incisors, I still left them proclined. And in my mind, I said, okay, I want to leave some proclination of the upper incisors knowing that what I've seen in other cases like this, that they're going to tip in. All right, so I'm starting to evolve in my thinking about over-engineering my checks. So here's the Murphy's Law part. <laughs> I got exactly what I asked for. You know, he's, he's still a little bit pro-clined. So now, is that, is that success? Well, yes and no. I kind of think, well, it's, it's not really what I wanted. I was hoping for them to tip in. But I also look at that as money in the bank. You know, th- you, know you could treat this patient with anything at this point and finish him. But he's, you know, he's, he's now solid, solid class one, And we basically need to finish this case up in refinement just to get the overjet corrected and, and sock in the occlusion. Nothing terribly earth shattering here. This time I'm gonna sort of prescribe some tipping in to correct the rest of the overjet. So here he's in progress. And again, he's, he just was in a couple of weeks ago. He's got two sets of aligners to go. Um, so again, not a finished case. Flame away if you want to, but uh, it was certainly, I think we're on the way here, um, and from where we started, uh, you know, he's looking good and should finish up fine. Actually, and the next patient is not completely finished either, so. But at this point, he's in treatment to 16 months. Okay, so then this Kyle. We've got two more cases to go. It's 12 and a half. Once Invisalign. You know, if you brand your practice as the Invisalign practice in the area, Invisalign teen practice, initially you get a lot of pushback from parents about, you know, it's not going to work. And then as the years go by, you get this scenario. You know, know, we ask them to fill out a form and we we get information, you know, when they make the initial phone call. You know, one of the questions that we ask is, you know, have you been to any other orthodontist? And, you know, the answer is always no. And have you gotten this one? You know, so you're doing the exam with the kid and you say something and the kid turns to the parents and goes, oh, well that's not what the other orthodontist said. And you're like, what? What other orthodontist? (laughs) You know, like, doctor-patient relationship, you've started off by lying to me. (laughs) You know, and you're like, oh, I I didn't know you went for another opinion. And I I understand it too, it's human nature, maybe they're embarrassed, or whatever, they feel funny. But I want to know that stuff. Um, But now we get parents that go in, oh, you know, you're actually the third office we've been to she, he really wants Invisalign. The other two doctors said he's not a candidate. So with time, you, 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 you'll, you'll get those patients coming to you because you are the teen practice, and that's Kyle. He, he wants Invisalign teen. He doesn't want to wear braces. He's protrusive, protruding, and spaced upper incisors. He has a deep and pinching overbite. And we're gonna spend a few minutes talking about that, too, right in this check. Would you treat this patient with Invisalign? You know, and, you know his upper incisors are protrusive, but he's got a relatively normal nasolabial angle, which I use as a diagnost- diagnostic criteria here. He's, you know, skeletal class two, deficient mandible with a deep, deep curve of speed. So let's talk, we'll talk a little bit, in this ClinCheck, a little bit about um, my thoughts. I'll try, I'll get you inside my head as I'm thinking through a ClinCheck and how I approach deep overbites. Let's go back for a second. So I want you to pay attention. We'll spend five minutes on this. I want you to pay attention to these two attachments on the lower fours and fives. Sorry about that. These two attachments very rarely appear the first time you get a clin check. And I'm, now you have to follow this logic. So here's this curve speed. You know, in this case, I, I want to level... In my mind, I want to level his curve of speed with intrusion. I don't want to extrude his posterior teeth, because if I extrude his posterior teeth, it's going to increase his vertical dimension, rotate his mandible down and back, and make it more retronathic, so I don't want to do that. Very, very often, almost routinely, when you ask for this level of lower incisor intrusion, or any lower incisor intrusion for that matter, in, if, unless the G5 software is triggered and you'll get the retentive attachments on the premolars, very often, you'll get these little, small, optimized attachments for rotation on the premolars, those little semilunar ones. Here's the problem those attachments are only optimized for rotation. They have nothing to do with the anchorage that you need to intrude the lower incisors. And to get this degree of lower inc- incisor intrusion, we need to revisit Newton's third law, which you know, paraphrases for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So think about this aligner. What is this aligner trying to achieve? It's trying to depress the lower incisors. What's the reaction force? It wants to lift up in the back, and that's typically expressed when patients go, you know, my aligners are bouncy. And listen, that movement, lifting off of the aligners, is clearly a lot easier than this level of, of lower incisor intrusion. So if the aligners are lifting off in the back, you have no force to your lower incisors and I think that's why maybe you know sometimes the aligners underperform because the lower incisors aren't feeling the intrusion force to begin with so G5 has addressed that to some degree but you don't always get the retentive attachments on the premolars you want to lock that incisor down in the buccal segments so it doesn't lift off so that the force of intrusion is felt on the incisors The reason why you don't always get the retentive attachments in G5 triggered is that the software prioritizes rotation over intrusion. So if there's a five degree rotation on a premolar, you're gonna get a rotation attachment. That's just the way the software works. My feeling is I don't care about a five degree uh, premolar rotation at this point. My number one problem on my problem list is, is opening up that deep overbite. So I trash in ClinCheck Pro, the optimized premolar rotations, and I put on a big mama rotation, uh, a retentive attachment, the bigger the better. So I can ClinCheck Pro, if I, the occlusion would allow it, I would, add uh, here's a little trick. If you hover your mouse over the attachment, and you click on it, nothing happens. <laughs> Super. You're supposed to get a, I don't know why it's not happening. What am I doing wrong? Oh, thank you very much. Oh, what a dummy. <laughs> What's that, Adam? You say, you kind of be beveled, but not they don't have to be beveled. Be beveled. Now, yeah. Whatever you think is going to lock that aligner down. Well, I, I bevel it. I, I mean, I, there's probably no rationale for beveling it otherwise, I, other than that I'm just used to doing it that way. But no, it could be a, just a standard. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe not. Let's see. Let, let's see. Maybe it's not, yeah, you're, I think you're right, I stand corrected. Yeah, yeah, I, honestly, I, I, I think you're right though, it doesn't matter in this case, because you're just looking for retention here. So, ah, now that you cl- click on the attachments in the Cuts tab, thank you very much, nice to know that you guys are awake, you click on it and you get this little screen that comes up, and you can make it four millimeters, you know, if you happen to have a big enough tooth, you can make it five millimeters. So instead of having to send in instructions to your technician, you can resize them as you see fit. And, you know, and if the occlusion allows, I, I, this, is, this is typically what I'll use for, I want more retention. And again, I, do I know what the optimal amount of retention is or what the optimal uh, uh, re- uh, size is? No, but I, I feel <laughs> bigger is better in this case. I'm from New York, so bigger is better. So, but you can do that. So that's a nice little trick. Okay. So, you want to prioritize, again, the overbite correction over the rotations. First of all, that's a really big attachment. Typically, you'll get the rotation anyway, but if, let's say, you get beautiful bite opening, but there's still rotation. In New York, we have an expression, and it's muzzle tough. I mean, it's congratulations, good luck, you've done it. Go back in re- refinement, do a little bit of rotation. You've done the hard work, so you just have to clean it up. Now, I learned a lesson from the last case and again I look at the protrusive upper incisors here and I say to myself okay built in over engineering so my instructions are very specific to the technician dear technician please retract the upper incisors while maintaining the initial torque and you can see how they go see it we're not allowing any change to that torque now in your mind, or with your phone, or both, make a picture of that. Because you look at that final ClinCheck and you go, that looks terrible. But it doesn't look terrible. Because if you could get, if you could have a ClinCheck done on whatever, a Roth prescription, you have use a pre-adjusted appliance, it doesn't matter. If you could sort of have a, a ClinCheck done on what full expression of your Roth prescription would be, it looked like that. 17 degrees of torque and all, all these other things. So it's, we, we, we have it built into our prescriptions because we know that there's play between the wire and the slot and all these things. You just don't see it. But that's what the ClinCheck sh- should look like in, in two dimensions. One is the additional palatal root torque or the maintenance of the initial uh, over palatal root torque. The other is in the deep bite. And now, again, from Bill Cotterman, and if you haven't seen Bill talk about deep bites, I encourage you very strongly to see him. My typical instructions for deep bite case are, please set the final overbite at zero millimeters at the upper twos and 0.5 millimeters at the upper ones. And Bill has found routinely that whatever you see as far as bite opening on a ClinCheck, clinically will be two millimeters deeper. So you overdo it by two millimeters. And again, you know, the question comes up, well, what happens if the bite opens this much? Again, you're, you're home free. If the bite opens this much, it's like the, the, the case where you put upper and lower recurve arch wires in and the kid disappears for a year, and they come back and they're like this, and you're like, oh, it's time to take those wires out. But you know what's going to happen. You know they'll settle in, especially if it's a deep bite case. So worst case scenario, if you get to here, it's very easy to, to finish that up in... in and it is gradual, right? So, I mean, again, if it looks that great, maybe you do a mid course correction. Make sense? All right, now, here's Kyle at refinement in one year. He's not done, but in my estimation, it's not too shabby. He, he's really, I mean, his bite, bite opening is coming along, his sagittal correction is coming along, and it's just one year of treatment. Now, the interesting thing is, with all that additional palatal root torque built into the case, we still lost the anterior torque, and that's why he has a posterior open bite. And I think this is an important point, because the question comes up all the time um, about finishing. You know, when do you start to run up and down elastics? And I think that with Invisalign, I don't know... I do think that we do tend to get inadvertent posterior open bites because of the bite block effect of the plastic. But I think many, many posterior open bites are from loss of upper anterior torque. And I think that's something to to pay attention to. If it's loss of anterior torque, you know, and and we know the literature, and there's there's sort of a, a debatable, let me put it that way, there's a debatable relationship between occlusion and TMD. Let's just leave it at that. However, my feeling is that if, let's say, this patient now has heavy anterior contact, could we possibly be distalizing the condyle in the fossa? And then if we sock them in with elastics, maybe we're capturing the, the condyle more posterior, maybe off the disc. And again, I don't know, but I know I don't want to do that. So think these cases through before you start to either section your liners in the back or run up and down elastics to think and look at your upper incisor torque. You know, and again, the analogy with braces would be if you treated this patient simply with round wires, what would you expect to happen? So here we are at progress. And again, you know, did I get lucky? That's a lot of growth. He's on the juice. You know, he's got testosterone and and growth hormone. This, This is predictable, normal growth. Now having said that, look at his IMPA at the beginning of treatment. Even with with the intrusion and everything else, it started out at 90. It's still 90. Look at his mandibular plane angle in the the light of all those, in the class 2 elastics. And I think that's one of the beauties of this class 2 correction with Invisalign. And again, in my mind, I don't have any data, why these cases correct so quickly is that we're not opening the mandibular plane angle and making the patient more class 2 than they need to be. And I think that... So we're getting more horizontal expression of the class two elastics and less vertical. Yes? you think that you know, it's a great question. And I'll tell you, you know, up until, you know, up until re- recently, Accelident just wasn't on my radar. And I had a, very recently a, a meeting with the rep. And, you know, there's, there's some interesting... Research and, and Dr. Nikazesis and I were talking about Propel, and I, I, I can't comment on that only because I haven't done it and I'm, I'm not educated on that. Um, but having spoken to doctors who use, you know, all, all of these different accelerated techniques, it, there seems to be at least from a clinical, you know, clinical evidence that it's compelling. So I, I think that um, I have to tell you though this now this is an aside. So we do all this accelerated orthodontics, and in my mind. My first question is, how are we gonna get them to pay the bill if they're done so fast? And, and that's, I mean, I, I mean you, know, you laugh, but I mean, that's a practice management issue. Because we have patients that, you know, there's that last couple of payments left and they're done and now out of sight, out of mind, and it's hard to collect. I mean, and if you think you can treat a patient in, let's say, let's say a regular two-year case in half the time, do you tell them, well, your monthly payments are going to be you know, $500 a month? I mean, I don't, I don't know, but that's maybe we should talk about that afterwards. But um, but the evidence certainly, I mean, for Propel and Excelon, seems to be overwhelmingly positive. Um, and the other question, did I, I don't know if I answered your question or not. I don't know if I can answer your question. Yeah, well, Oh, oh I, I understand your question now. Right, if you do it too fast, you're not going to allow the growth to catch up. Now I understand your question. That's a good point. And very often, not, not in this case, but very often you'll get a case where there's not a lot of crowding and the arches are relatively well aligned, but they're a big class too. And the first clincheck comes back with like 12 stages. And that's a problem because you know they're not going to correct in 12 stages and they can't wear stage 12 for six months. So I would tell my technician, please slow down all movements to last arbitrarily, I usually say 25 stages. I'm thinking, I want to have them go around a year. That's probably a good time to see how the AP is doing and to see how, and to, for refinement. So don't, make sure you have enough aligners to hang your rubber bands on. It's an excellent point. Now, now I got it, second time around. Thank you. Now, here's his ref, he's not done, but I want to show you his refinement check, and I want to, again, get, get you into my head about what I'm thinking about here. So, we know he's got a posterior open bite because we lost some upper anterior torque. So, you know what I'm going to do. Dear technician, please add uh, 20 degrees of additional palatal root torque. We're also intruding a little bit more. Intrude and retract. So, you know, my lesson from Kyle is that don't be timid about the amount of... I was a little too timid about the amount of overengineering in my prescription, my pre-adjusted Invisalign prescription that I'm doing. At this point, he's in treatment 14 months. And here's the last patient that we're going to go over, and then we'll go over some tips and things in the last... Thank you. In the last 10 minutes. Here's Oscar. He's 12 years old. Class 2 division 2. He's class 2 division 2. Deep impinging overbite, moderate upper and lower crowding, convex profile, and again, as you expect, a recessive mandible. Would you treat this patient with Invisalign? Now, another question comes up is, when do you use the precision bite ramps and when don't you? In this case, I want the here's Here's the rule of thumb. If I am looking for bite opening with posterior eruption, I'm using bite ramps because I'm looking to disarticulate the posterior teeth and get posterior eruption. If I'm looking for bite opening, bite anterior intrusion, I don't use the bite, bite ramps because I don't want that. So that's my simple criteria for when I use them and when I don't. You know, again, contrasted with braces, you know, if, if a patient comes in with a deep impinging overbite, you're sort of compelled to use the bite turbos whether you want them or not. You know, and sometimes that you get these deep bite hyperdivergent long face cases, and you put the bite turbos on and you're making that, that long face even worse. You don't have to do that with Invisalign, and I think that's one of the neat things about it. Or in those other cases, you've got to get on the upper arch first and you know, until you can clear the bite to get the lower braces on. All right, so here's a little quiz, your final exam. Can't leave until someone gives the right answer. <laughs> What's missing from this check? So here's before. We'll go right to the end. Someone over here. What's missing from this clinch check? Looks good, right? That's the problem. It looks too good. Torque, thank you. There's no over-engineering built into this. And you could, you saw where his upper anterior started, and I'm thinking, you know, we've got to overdo this because we I mean, we'll never get here unless we over-engineer the torque and the bite opening. So we did not, put, I did not add anywhere near enough. I mean, you look at that, you go, yeah, that's what I want. But remember the final clinch check. Is not a simulation of the final result. Because the ClinCheck, stop looking at ClinCheck as teeth and start looking at them as aligners. It's really the force systems that we're using to move the teeth, it's not the teeth themselves. So don't be hypnotized by something that looks too perfect. So here he is. This is now 30 months into treatment. And again, not quite done, just finishing up. Um, but again, DIV2 case, you expect, oh, and here's another thing too, sometimes people go, oh, you know, 50 aligners, I can't believe the case has 50 aligners, and I, I find that ironic, because if this patient walked into my office, I'd think he's a two and a half to three year case, he's a DIV2 case, so that's what it is, so it's 50 aligners because he's a two and a half to three year case, I don't know why people get hung up so much on the number of aligners, it's, it's just how long the patient needs to have treatment, so I, I, that doesn't bother me at all. You go, oh, how can we get the number of aligners down? And it's like saying, well, if you think you could treat that patient another way in less time, then maybe do it, but it's, it's not basically the number of aligners. It's, it's the treatment. You know, I, 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 again, I had a, t- a, con- a talk with John Morton yesterday about power ridges. Uh, you know, there's, I have some issues with them. Uh, patients don't like them. They hurt the lip. Um, I, I tend to take them off and I tend to just ask for the torque and I place an attachment on the tooth because the power ridges also, have you noticed that the power ridges make the aligners kind of squirt off the teeth? And you think about it, what's, you, know, you know the Burstone diagrams, when you put torque into a bracket, the other side effect is extrusion. So the aligner, is that power ridge is pushing against the tooth and it's like squirting off the tooth like a watermelon seed. You know, the per- patient puts the first aligner in are hanging off and I don't think you're getting any of that, that torque. So what I do is I say, please remove all power ridges, I put some kind of retentive attachment on the incisors, and I still ask for the torque, and that's how I do that. John Morton would sit there and shake his head, and you know, maybe he's right, but I haven't, I haven't been uh, happy with the power ridges. No, oh, um, here's his refinement clincheck, almost there. We are right on time, folks. Not looking bad. Almost there. But this is this is the e-ticket of uh, refinement, clinchex, in my mind. To your technician, and you know, in this case, by the way, you know there are the bite ramps. To your technician, please set the final overbite at zero millimeters at the twos and 0.5 millimeters at the ones with some additional um, PRT, palatal torque. And again, looking at this, maybe even a little bit more, another 10 degrees probably wouldn't have hurt. Okay, make, so that's, that's the, the talk about, that's what I wanted you to, do to take home about your pre adjusted prescription in your ClinChecks. All right, so what do I do when I ask for the torque? I will put on a, a sort of, I try to make it look like an optimized extrusion, atta- uh, extrusion attachment. So it's going to be a gingivly beveled rectangular attachment. And what's really cool with that new version of ClinCheck Pro that's going to come out, you can kind of change the angle of that attachment a little bit you know, to make it even more retentive. Because I want to block the extrusion component of force from the torque. So I want to lock that aligner up there so that the torque can express. So a, rec- a horizontal, rectangular, gingivly beveled attachment. Yeah, and again, in a big tooth, I'd probably do four millimeters. If it's a smaller tooth, probably the standard size is fine. And here we are to date, just finishing up Oscar's case. But, yeah, you know, look at that case. And, you know, when you go back, you know, maybe, you know, maybe rethink whether you think that patient's an Invisalign candidate. All right. Let's spend a couple of minutes, the last ten minutes, on troubleshooting. Now... There's a variety of emergencies in my office that I never know about because Nancy at the front desk handles them. So you never know they happened. For example, patient calls up. Johnny lost his aligners. Nancy knows what to say. Thank you for calling. Switch to your next set of aligners. Problem solved. With kids in particular, teens, and in particular with smart track, it's very unusual that you can't warp ahead one one set. Problem solved. You never never know that they called. Broken aligners. Johnny broke his aligners. Thank you for calling. Switch to your next set of aligners. Problem solved. P.S. Tell Johnny not to play with his aligners, and the kids do that. They they flip them in and they bite them down. And you know, in the aligner insertion instruction says always insert your aligners with finger pressure. And the reason why is that if you get it in just a little bit skewed and you bite down on it, it's going to flex. And I tell my patients, it's like a paper clip. There's only so many times that you can bend it before it's, it's going to get stress and break. When the kids are walking around all day, you're biting them in and out, they break them, sometimes within a few days. So you have to counsel the kids not to flip their aligners. Along. But almost always... That's what the broken aligners are from, right, guys? I mean, I'll say, oh, I bet you you flip your aligners, and the, it, it's it's almost always always, and that's how you solve that problem. Now, at some kids, and you know, some kids can't stop. And, you know, and you don't get mad at them. I mean, I, Dr. Glazer, I just can't stop doing it. In those cases, we'll have them switch their aligners once a week, which you know, unless they're like really bad, seems to do the trick. Broken attachments. You know, uh, you know there's two, I, think, I think of attachments as two classes. There's the retentive attachments, and then there's the sort of the optimized attachments, but I don't know, I, I think especially for a relative short period of time, I don't know if there's any one attachment for maybe a, a set or two of aligners that's, that, that's critical, so we'll generally say, thank you for calling, we'll place it at the next visit. Um, if they're freaked out, which some of the parents are, you know, come on over, we'll put it back, back on, but I don't think it's anything that has to happen today. And you just tell the parents, it's, you know, we have a lot of other attachments, not any one is that important. And you could find maybe a spot on the schedule where you know, it's not squeezed in with 800 other patients. So for the most part, you know, if you're the doctor in the back, you don't know that these phone calls have ever happened because they're managed at the front desk and patients are happy, someone's spoken to them and they feel better. College students. I think Invisalign and college students makes a lot of sense. Here's enough aligners until you come home FaceTime me if you have any questions. Because what do you do if they're in braces? You know, they're, they're, they're gone for the semester one way or the other. So we, they come in in August, we give them enough aligners, we come back, you know, they come back and see us again, Christmas break, and I'll tell you, now the FaceTime thing. You know, when I first heard that, I thought, you know, does that make me somehow like a sleazy orthodontist, that you know, you know, they're not even coming to the office? But you know what? It's digital technology. I mean, if you have a high resolution camera, and you're looking at the patient on the screen, is it any different than if they're sitting in front of you? I mean, and certainly it's better than nothing, and if they're up in, you know, you know, in Cornell or wherever they are, or you know, the Arizona or wherever, and they can't come home, you can, you can have them, or just take some pictures, you, know, you can teach them to take little selfies of the aligners in their teeth, and send them over to us, and let's take a look, and let's see what's going on. If you have a question, maybe you, you hold them in an aligner, or, so I think it's a positive, it's not a negative, and I don't, you know, no, no one's ever gonna say, uh, you're ripping us off. You know, you're, you're not even ha- seeing us in the office. Um, people appreciate that, so use that digital technology to your advantage. I mean, we have patients call up sometimes. Dr. Glazer, something's happening. Uh, I'm not sure if I should come in. Hey, can you snap a picture of it with your phone and send it over? Let me take a look and see. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Okay, a couple of consultation pearls. We have six minutes to go. Okay, now, I have... Uh, oh, here, here, by the way, here's something huge. I see patients routinely once every 12 weeks. So when they come in for their first set of aligners, we give them one through six, and we see them in 12 weeks. If they're compliant, they're compliant. If they're not, they're not. If they're compliant, once every 12 weeks is great. If they're not, we see them more often for babysitting, and I would say that's maybe 5 to 10% of the patients, you know, for motivation. But I've never had a mom say to me, you're only seeing us once a season, you're ripping us off. You know, I can't believe you're charging us They appreciate that. Kids are busy with sports and all the things, and, and parents are busy. You know, both parents are working, and they, are pre- they they don't want to come to your office every month. I mean, there's no reason to come to your office every month. So you make it a positive. If there's t- any TCS in the room, good. It's a positive. You know, so you don't say, "Oh, I'm really sorry." You know, you only got to come th- once every three months. You say, "It's great. We know you're busy. We don't want to intrude on your schedule because uh, everybody knows soccer is more important than teeth." Um, you only have to come in about once a season. And parents go, great, thank you. So it's a, it's a really good thing for TC's to use in, in the consult room. And, and that the magic psychology for the teen patient is, Susie, if you don't want to go to the prom or have your senior pictures with braces, just wear your aligners 22 hours per day and follow our instructions. And the other, you ever have a kid you tell them no gum and like their shoulders slump, like you've just like you know, devastated them. You tell kids, you want to chew gum? No problem, Trident doesn't stick to the aligners. You know, it's funny, I, I have in my mind that it's like the poor man's Excelident, you know, if they chew on the Trident. I'm just, I mean, don't, don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not advocating that, but you wonder, if they're like Bruxers, you know, maybe if they chew into the gum, it's kind of goosing the aligners over the teeth. I don't think it's gonna hurt, but knock yourself out. Chew, chew all the gum you want. Kids appreciate that, for a teenager, That is an amazingly big deal. Um, And one last quote from Thomas Edison. Our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is to always try just one more time. And that's what I leave you with today. Thank you for your attention. Have a great conference.